The following program deals with a controversial subject. The theories expressed are not the only possible interpretation. Viewers are invited to make a judgment based on all available information. This is your captain speaking. We are beginning our descent into madness. Another edition of West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's not that late today. We're actually on earlier than last time, if you can believe that. I am joined right now, however, by Genevieve. Genevieve, how are you doing over there? Hello, Frank. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm excited about tonight's show. Uh, oh, our guest tonight is uh, Father Sebastian, mm-hmm. uh, who will be with us, uh, as I mentioned, shortly. And we're going to be talking about one of my favorite cities in the world. And I know a lot of people feel the same way. And apart that's a city, Los Angeles, obviously. Yeah. Apart from LA. <laughs> uh, but that's the city of Paris. Paris, not Paris, Texas, Paris, France. Don, did I prepare to show you? Yeah, wrong? I think oh, you were no. looking at the wrong, yeah, wrong, <laughs> wrong kidding, city there. But um, it's a great city. It's a beautiful city. It's a, it's a, it's a city that has inspired um, many artists throughout history. And uh, tonight, as I mentioned earlier, our guest is uh, Father Sebastian, and I'm just going to read an excerpt here from his bio. Uh, Father Sebastian, most commonly referred to simply as Father, is one of the central personalities of the vampire subculture. He is known as the master fangsmith of Sabretooth, impresario of the endless night vampire ball, and author of Sanguinomicon, Vampire Virtues, and Vampire Magic. You did pretty well. Thank you. Yeah, no, I practiced that. Hmm. Yeah, before the show. Yeah, mm-hmm. was, don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> He's also been on uh, numerous TV programs, including, uh, you know, A&E, CNN, Discovery Channel, MTV, you name it. Uh, you, I'm pretty sure you probably have caught Father Sebastian you on your what TV. I, what I saw recently, mm-hmm. uh, Zach Bagans, you remember him? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, he his acquaintances with him as oh, well. Oh, very so cool. So it, it's a small world. Yeah, yeah. Last yeah. time I saw Zach, he was uh, shooting paintballs at somebody's crutch. True story. True story. <laughs> that doesn't uh, sound surprising to, yeah, no, to me. So <laughs> it sounds tonight, like something you would do. Tonight, we're going to be talking with Father Sebastian about uh, his book, Dark Paris, which is based on the uh, tours of the same name, uh, Dark Paris, which are uh, walking tours where they explore the spooky side of Paris. And you can get this book, and uh, I believe there will be a revised version coming out soon as well, which should be available soon, and I'm excited to talk to him about that. So without further ado, let me bring Father Sebastian into the conversation. Father Sebastian, can you hear us okay? Absolutely. That was a quite an introduction. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'm thank very, you. Uh, flattered by the way you actually pronounced my book names right. Oh, well, but like I said, I practiced. I made sure I got this <laughs> right. But thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're a busy guy traveling, you know, back and forth between France and the U.S. So it really means a lot to get a chance to speak to you about this fascinating, fascinating city that is Paris. Uh, when did your love affair with Paris begin? Well, actually, uh, I always was in love with Europe. And my mother told me as a child that I was more European than American. But I found that when I spent time in Europe, I became more American. I became more patriotic. <laughs> and I, I found such a great American influence there. And one of the cities, as Gertrude Stein would say, if you ever seen the movie Midnight in Paris, that Paris calls to you. And that um, she didn't exactly say that, but what I'm about to say next is actually more accurate. Mm-hmm. That America is my country and Paris is my hometown. And, That's nice. That's nice. And uh, I've been kind of called to Paris. And Paris is my European capital for my vampire world. And I uh, got to Paris around... I, I met a French cabaret dancer who danced at a little club called Crazy Horse, if anybody's heard oh. of that. This this woman was... Uh, her name was Saskia Mina. I had uh, been in New York for two years and she came and visited me and visited me and visited me and convinced me to move to Paris and live in across the street from the Pantheon. Mm-hmm. And I got there and I, I, I had my fang business because, as you know, I make custom fangs right. for vampire lovers. And I was looking for something uh, a little bit more uh, interesting that could get me into a connection with Paris. 
Mm-hmm. So I started doing my research and I, I know the ghost tours from New Orleans. And cause I, as we throw the endless night vampire ball in New Orleans, it's uh, a common thing to have a, we have a private tour for our guests. We hire the best tour guides in town and I fell in love with the tour. So I was like, you know what? Maybe I'm going to go take a ghost tour. Maybe nice. I'll write my next book on Paris. So I started looking around to do, I mean, a ghost tour is a great place to start. And there was no Paris ghost tour. And I'm like, oh, come on. This is a 2,000-year-old city covered in blood of over 100 <laughs> wars, uh, the French Revolution, and it's got the best catacombs network in the world. There's got to be a ghost tour. Right. And to my surprise, there was not. So I um, started doing research and investigations, and it took me about two years, and I put my script together. And then I started a blog. My original name of my project was called Mysteries of Paris. And... That name, for some reason, did well, but it wasn't like it didn't catch you. Right. And so um, last year, I rebranded the whole project Dark Paris. And uh, it is basically all of the nooks and crannies of things that the French ignore or wow. forgotten about. And let me ask you this, because here in the U.S., as you mentioned, you know, ghost tours are pretty common. We seem to love anything paranormal, ghost stories, you know, haunted places, abandoned places, you name it. Uh, is France the same way? Are, are the people in France the same? Are, are they mm. into the paranormal? I'll put it like this. When you ask a French person, do they believe in God? They say, I don't care. When you ask them if they believe, if they're an atheist, they say, I don't care. Stop even discussing this with me. If you want to talk about history sex or politics or food, let's do it. <laughs> Literature or philosophy. But when it comes to the discussion of afterlife, it comes to the discussion of uh, supernatural or paranormal. The French <laughs> just don't buy it. They are based on rationality. It's when you're dead, you're dead. You get burned or buried. And if it's the quality of life that you live and the integrity of how you live. That's why they take so many holidays. Right. But only about three, three to five percent of the population believes in any supernatural God. Believing in God or having faith in God is a supernatural reality. Okay, mm-hmm. you're believing in something supernatural, or not paranormal, but supernatural. Wow. And for them, it's trying to ask them to give me ghost stories was like they looked at me like I was two heads. When I walked into the consulate in New York to ask for my visa to open a ghost tour and I brought brochures from around the world. They told me, are you crazy? <laughs> and then the counselor general, who is the person in charge of the embassy came out and asked me to come into his office. And he asked me wow. to open a pudding store with him because he thought my business plan was so smart. Wow. And so what, the, the reason why energy flows through people and human consciousness is we focus on archetypes And we mold reality in according to our own perceptions. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting is those ghosts that we encounter, those supernatural beings, a lot of people think that they're external from the human collective consciousness. I think they're internal. So as the ancient Egyptians would say, there's two deaths, the first death and the second death. The first death is when you die physically, and the second death is when you're forgotten. Okay? Mm-hmm. So... One of the things that the French do is they pay attention to history. So they have a very different perception. Wow. There's also a very big difference between French culture and American culture. American culture comes from the Germanic tribes. Okay. That's where we get a lot of our personality as a culture. Um, our very language is a Germanic language. And what is unique about the Vikings and the Germans? They're storytellers. And that has gone from the Vikings sitting by a fire, talking about their glorious conquests, all the way to conquering the world with Hollywood. <laughs> right. So one of the things that I like to do, okay, is, you know, a lot of my friends who are in the supernatural business, as you mentioned before, uh-huh. they're, you know, there's a lot of accusations that the shows are fake and everything like that. Well, I don't think they're fake at all. And I just see it in a very different way. And when I walk through the streets of Paris, I see a different side of Paris. Now, there's the side that the French see, and all my customers are Anglos. They're English speakers, Germans or Dutch or uh, uh, English or Scottish or American or, you know, mm-hmm. from the Anglosphere, the countries that are very talented with English. And the stories are alive. 
So one of the things that I did with every night, I would walk through the streets of Paris and that these forgotten stories, these stories that have not been of any interest to the French, I would trans, I had them translated in my research, both paranormal and mystical and mm-hmm. supernatural and whatnot. And I would present them to the Anglos. So they would come alive to the people that would be um, experiencing the stories live action. And so I made it, a, I've done over 1,500 tours in Paris in my days. And I've probably had about 20,000 people walk with me on my path. Wow. Just imagine the impact that that has. And usually it takes eight to 10 years for those stories to come alive in some media point or whatever. And I would say only about 20 to 30% have any paranormal or supernatural elements. The rest are living stories. And one of the things that I felt very limited was is when I had my tour script that the legends are alive, but I was resurrecting legends that the French didn't pay attention to about their own history. And those legends came to life through dark Paris. And it's really important to be aware of that. I'm a very, very, very skeptical person. I'm very, very scientific. I try to perceive myself as a very big rationalist. I like to call people out and bullshit. But recently, and I do believe in energy. I believe that psychic energy is very, very much a reality. But I think it's more psychological. I mean, one of the things that I find very stressful is the lack of understanding and the difference between paranormal and supernatural. Paranormal is not ghosts. Paranormal... Um, it really depends on your perception. So let me give you two examples of something that was paranormal in the year 1800. Okay. Two things were paranormal. Now, paranormal gives you a science, a result that's got a scientific result, but you can't figure out how it works. Okay. Okay. There's an actual phenomenon that exists, but you cannot figure out how it works. So for example, and this is science, this is not mumbo jumbo as Han Solo would say. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Paranormal, these two things, the first, which was discovered around the 1800s, was air. Air. It's there. They, there was a scientific result with wind and storms and everything like that. But air did not exist in the human consciousness until the 1820s. We didn't know what it was. Air was paranormal. Okay. Mm -hmm. Another thing that's paranormal is bacteria. When you would go to a scientist in 1830 and try to explain that bacteria, microscopic unseen organisms, would affect the health of people, like viruses and everything like that, doctors would open up one patient, use their hands, and they would go to the next patient and transfer a disease until bacteria was discovered and it was commonly accepted by science. And in some places in the world, it's not still, but in Western, you know, in modern society, of mm-hmm. course it is. Bacteria was paranormal because there was a scientific result, but we didn't know what caused it. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about supernatural things, there are things that are outside the realm of science and nature. So, for example, God would be supernatural. Mm-hmm. You can also perceive them as paranormal. Just as a side note, it it really reminds me of um, you know this, this idea of the the elements that they established in ancient Greece because you know they had fire, wood, and um, one of the most memorable ones for me was always phlogiston, and they believed in these basic elements. They didn't understand how it worked, but they they believed these elements exist and that it it made the whole world you know turn around and phlogiston mm-hmm. was always one of the very interesting wow. ones you know that they, they just believe these things existed mm-hmm. and that's what made you know things burn and combust it's what made things wet it's what made things just work and in, in the world yeah. so yeah no, no that's that, that was a side analogy <laughs> no it was not it was good that was a good perception i wanted to uh to get into some of the stories because i know people uh, are eager to hear about some of the things you have found in your research of, of the city of paris and one that i wanted to ask you about because this one <laughs> this one was pretty you know intense was uh it's titled in your book the Bathory of paris 
Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about that story? Because that was really, I mean, I, if I would have been around back then, I would have been pretty scared to go out. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's many variations on the story. Um, and the historical evidence is also very blurry. And the Battery of Paris began around uh, 1686 during the reign of Louis XIV, uh, the Sun King who to this day is probably the most badass king in, in human history. <laughs> nice. And he, he was the one who built Versailles. Um, he was uh, just a warrior. Well, I'll give you an example of, of the, the, this king. One night, a marquis, which means marquis actually means protectors of the frontier. That's what the title means. That's an interesting fact. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a good yeah. one. <laughs> they were they were given uh, the frontier lands. Like Louis uh, Lestat de Lioncourt was the Marquis of near Avignon. He was the vampire in the interview with the vampire. Um, and then there's the Marquis de Sade, who is a real guy who was created BDSM. Oh, wow. um, and so one day, uh, a Marquis from Breton, which is is the, one of the coastal areas, um, was in Versailles. And he would and what Louis would do is keep all his nobles in Versailles. He would keep, he built big apartment complexes and theaters, and he would make all the nobles stay there or relatives of the nobles to keep them under check so he could keep an eye on everyone. So this Breton, which is a Celtic nation, Brittany, it's on the coast of France. Mm-hmm. Um, he, uh, he came in and he was, he was earlier banished to his own land. And Louis looked him in the eye and said, my friend, I told you to stay on your own soil. Well, the noble was sitting there and he goes, but your majesty, I have my soil and my shoes from my own land. And I walked all the way here from Breton. Louis had him uh, executed the next day. Wow. Yeah. So now Louis took things very seriously. He believed in divine right. And in in the summer of 1686, young men from the center of Paris in the Layal district were disappearing in reasonably numbers that would concern both the parents and Louis because these men were Breton, which uh, not Breton, uh, bourgeoisie, which were the, was the middle class. And they were basically fit to be soldiers. And Louis didn't like losing soldiers. It interrupted his rule. And so he had a musketeer by the name of Lecoq. And this is his real name. Okay. I'm not kidding. <laughs> um, was, was given the job of investigating the, um, the disappearances of the young boys, which were all in this district. And this is, uh, you know, this isn't too far from the Louvre, maybe a half a kilometer from the Louvre. Okay. Use my metric system. <laughs> and so he took his son, who was about the age, and these young men were between 16 and 22. And his, he had a 17 year old son, and he was called wide awake because he had really big eyes and he looked like he drank 20 Red Bulls and was always shaking. <laughs> so what they did was they took him and they put him in a fine shirt gave him a bag of coins, and told him to go to the Tuileries Gardens, which is the gardens next to the Louvre. And a lot of, you know, bourgeoisie and, and aristoc- the aristocracy would walk around, you know, and hang out. And beggars and puppeteers and, and performers would go there to entertain and make some money from the upper classes of the French estates. And he was given the story that he was the son of a doctor from French court. And on the third day, he encountered a woman by the name of Catherine, who was evidently a British woman, who Catherine had traveled around Europe and she was uh, pretty well educated. And she had an etching of a young woman. Now, this has nothing to do with Alice in Wonderland, but the young woman's name was Princess Jabberwocky. And she was actually from Poland. Her father was brother of the King of Poland and asked him to go to France as an ambassador. Because France was the center of the world at this time. I mean, they're building Versailles, okay. <laughs> raping Africa. Okay. And Louis was the center of the world. He was the div- king of divine right. So this etching and, and the young in the story, and Catherine explained to Wide Awake that the reason why the Polish princess is stuck in Paris is because her father was summoned back to Poland at the bequest of the Polish king and that she had a sizable fortune and she needed to find an appropriate young man to marry in France to fit into French culture. So 
she said, why don't you meet the, meet the steps of Saint-Germain-Dupree Church, okay, which is on the other side of the river. It's in the left bank of Paris at midnight. And I will take you for a tour because she is sensitive to light. And the etching was of a beautiful young woman, very pale. Well, he goes back to his father and Lecoq says, this is awesome. This looks like a perfect clue. This could potentially be a lead because Lecoq was kind of like a Sherlock Holmes kind of personality. So Lecoq said to Wide Awake, I will give you five of my best musketeers. They will be dressed in plain clothes, undercover, and they will be hiding around you and following and tracking you. So he goes to the church and Catherine's there and they walk through the streets of Paris, what seems like 1,001 winding lightless streets. Because remember, at this time, there wasn't street lights. Paris was a dark, dark, dark city. You don't mess around with Paris at this time, okay? There was candles, like you would have one candle in the window and then occasionally there would be a bonfire out by midnight. So she's walking with torches and lanterns through the streets of Paris in pitch black night. And she brings them into a, route, a small street in the Leal Chatelet district called Rue Cotolam. It's just numbers one and two. She brought him into a room and had him sit, sat down, gave him a uh, candle and said, would you mind please waiting here? I'm going to go upstairs and prepare the princess. Well, as she leaves the room, she closes the door and all he hears is a bolt close. And in a somewhat of a panic, he stands up and he goes over to the door. And sadly, he cannot open the door. It's locked. And he starts to panic. So as he goes around the room trying to find an exit, and there's bars on the windows, there's iron bars. And those iron bars are still there at number one Rue Cortelon right now. And he's running around with this candle and he finds what he feels is a doorknob and his second door in the room. But the doorknob is wedged. It's, it's kind of like secret. You, you wouldn't see it if you, if you, and he just got lucky and he felt like a rip in the wallpaper and he found a secret door and he opened the door oh, and he walked in. And all he saw looking back at him was the face of a young man in a jar. Wow. He counted 25 jars, the exact number of young men reported missing. He almost screams, but he's managed to hold his breath. He takes his shirt, wraps it around his hand and breaks the window, sticks the candle out in the street, hoping someone will see it. Remember, a candle's light is very bright at this time at one, two in the morning. It stands out because everybody's in bed. Now, remember, the normal sleep patterns of humans is you would go to sleep at sundown. You would wake up in the middle of the night. You would do some form of activity. And this is actually where, in ancient times, most conception occurred, sex. And then you would go back to sleep and sleep until sunrise. And the whole point was is that we would be asleep for the entire darkness except a period of time around for an hour in the middle that we would wake up. And it was like a reverse nap. So the whole city's asleep. And luckily, one of his father's men was walking down Rue Saint-Denis and saw the candle out of the corner of his eye, ran up, blew a giant horn, like the Horn of Gondor, and all of the Night's Watch, and I'm not talking Game of Thrones Night's Watch, (laughs) came... They broke the door down. They went upstairs to a second apartment. They found Catherine preparing a bath and two big men with leather strips and large blades being sharpened on these leather strips. I mean, that's really, I mean, I got, I got chills reading it. I got chills as you were uh, retelling that story. And that is just a small taste of the kind of things that were happening uh, in Paris. Another thing that I wanted to talk to you about, and, you know, obviously on this show, we talk about all the paranormal, conspiracy, supernatural type of stuff. And uh, every now and then the the topic of the Knights Templars uh, pop up. It's interesting because I was reading your book. You point to a certain individual that may have been responsible for the uh, conspiracy theory that there is a new world order um, you know, controlling everything. And uh, obviously the Knights Templar also make an appearance. Can you tell me a little bit about the Templars? And then we'll talk about uh, this uh, gentleman who 
could be responsible, I guess, for the idea, for the conspiracy theory that there is a new world order of sorts controlling the world. Sorry to sound redundant. <laughs> well, first, let's begin with um, the conspiracy theories. Okay. Uh, the the uh, the reality behind it is, is that a lot of people say that the Knights Templar and the uh, Freemasons are connected. Right. Um, that's not true. There was a revisionist order, like a resurrection. Like for example, Wicca is a revisionist version of an, a dead religion. So I've been the Carnival in Venice. I know Bilderbergers. I know the people that are the real Illuminati, mm-hmm. and it's not as organized as you think. However. The reality is even scarier. Oh, really? Yes, because it's more tangible. It's more realistic. Um, I've been throughout Europe. I've danced with people that own the banks in Switzerland. I've uh, been to Carnival in Venice and met, met the people that are the arms dealers that sell weapons to all these different people. And we're balanced by one great thing, the dollar. That is the true Illuminati. Wow. You know, a lot of these things are, I think, far-fetched that the, the Knights Templar are, in fact, a real organization that still exists called the Knights of Christ, which was one of their successor orders to the Knights Templar. So then you got to understand that the Knights Templar, Jacques Dumoulet, the grandmaster of the Knights Templar, um, was a banker. The Knights okay. Templar were basically kind of like Jedi, but instead of keeping peace, they kept the money for the king because Christians were not allowed to do banking. So what he would do is use the Templar temples to hold the riches of the aristocracy. So as today we have mega corporations, back then the world was ruled by the aristocracy, the kings and nobles and whatnot. And the king at the time basically wanted his money back from the Knights Templar without interest. Because back then you couldn't do banking. Only Jews could do banking. Mm -hmm. So what would happen is, is the Knights Templar would do something different because Christians wanted to do business with Christians, is they would take 3% of the, as, as a service fee, to pay for the upkeep and the horses and their equipment and um, a service. They would take about 3% of the money each year. Okay. So if you put, you know, 100 million francs in the bank, they would take, you know, 3% of that, and that would be their pay for protecting the money and the treasury. Okay. So you had to pay to protect your money, not like banks today who make money off interest. They pay you to keep their, your money. It's mm-hmm. a big difference in banking and stuff. So the king wanted to have his money protected, but he wanted to go to war. And Jacques Dumoulin said, well, you've, I've kept your money for six years. I'm, I'm, I'm keeping this money for the order. Not all of it, but part of it. Mm-hmm. And the king said, no, I want all my money because I need to pay my, my military. Well, Jacques Dumoulin said, no. And the Knights Templar had become extremely wealthy because they were protecting the pilgrims that were going to Jerusalem. And when the Crusades were over, they moved to Europe and they built a a huge network of temples, the Knights Templar, because they were supposedly from the Temple Mount. And the king was like, no, I want my money. So he went to the Pope and had Jacques de Molay accused of heresy because the Knights Templar picked up some pretty weird traditions in the Holy Land, like worshiping evidently something called Baphomet. Which is actually a, a, the most common theory is it's a translation, uh, a bastardized translation of the um, the word Muhammad. Oh, that's Muhammad. So he accused them of murder. Or he accused them of heresy. The Pope wrote a letter because the Pope was in France at the time in Avignon. That was the official Pope under the protection of the king. The king of France traditionally controlled the Pope and uh, had him accused of heresy, so they could just take all the money from the Knights Templar. Well, here's where it gets weird. As Jacques de Molay, and you can go visit the location where Jacques de Molay was burned at the stake. Forgive me, I, I haven't done the story in quite a while, so my date might be off. It's the 14th of March, 1314. I could be wrong. And there's a plaque underneath the statue of Henry IV on uh, uh, Pont Neuf in the middle of the bridge. And you walk down the stairs, and there's Le Pont Vert, which is a, a green park. And you look up and you'll say, this is where Jacques de Molay was burned at the stake. The island was called uh, Ile de Juif, or Island of the Jews. And that's where they would burn people for heresy. And the Jacques de Molay, as he was being burned at the stake, he asked to have his hands free. And he said that And it, his two co-grandmasters of the Knights Templar were um, next to him being burned at the stake. So it was three people on a bonfire. Mm-hmm. And he, as he prayed... He put a curse upon the king and the pope that he would meet them in God's court within a year. And both the pope and the king died within a year. Oh, the wow. king died f- falling from his horse in a hunting accident. 
And the Pope died of pneumonia within four or five months after the uh, executions. That's mm-hmm. incredible. So that's the story of the Knights Templar. But only the top 30 out of 10,000 knights were arrested. The Knights Templar was broken up like a big corporation, mm-hmm. and it was formed into new orders, and some of the property still existed. So the Knights Templar transformed. They didn't die away. They weren't all executed like Order 66 in Star Wars with the Dimper and the Jedi. <laughs> okay. And it's funny that you mentioned uh, Baphomet because that, that I wanted to talk about that a little bit because obviously that's a symbol that conjures up all kinds of uh, negative uh, thoughts and ideas in people's mind when they see it. And uh, a lot of it, I think, uh, due in part to uh, Hollywood and how it's portrayed in a lot of horror movies. But obviously the uh, uh, you know the, the mainstream religions, a lot of a lot of them uh, you know caution people against you know the symbol of Baphomet and all its connotations. But uh, it was really interesting to to read in your book about this gentleman and i apologize because i will probably butcher some names in the in the course of this interview but i believe it was gabriel uh jorgon page pages um, he was also known as leo tax taxil oh leo taxil yes Ah, who? Okay. Yeah, he apparently he was somewhat of a of a pseudo journalist, I believe, is the term you use in your book, which uh, kind of gave me a chuckle. It was interesting to read how he was. I mean, it seems like a smart, creative writer, and he wrote about the the Freemasons, and I guess he made people believe that the, the Freemasons were like a, a small group of uh, Satan worshippers, and you Would know, you like that story. Yeah, I was gonna say if you can tell us that story a little bit. Because it was really interesting just to kind of see how things can just bubble up into uh, almost like a twisted telephone game. Okay. So Leo Taxel was a pornographer. And back then, the literacy rate was a little bit different from what it was today. The bourgeois, the middle class. A lot of people think the bourgeoisie are the uh, rich people in France. The bourgeois boo-boo are the artists and... um, the uh, bourgeoisie were the middle class, doctors, lawyers, merchants, mm-hmm. uh, military soldier, military officers. And the bourgeoisie was um, part of the commoner state because there was three estates in France. There's the clergy, the aristocracy, and the common man. They were the top of the common man. But they were the literate people. So pornography back then was very much like Danielle Steele or Twilight today. That was pornography. So he was very, very, very popular with the... Um, aristocracy and the uh, bourgeoisie. He, uh, one day in the 1870s, his printing presses stopped suddenly, and he was a notorious pornographer. He had built a big name. So nude pictures of women were not what pornography is. You know, we know what pornography is in our perception today. Mm-hmm. But pornography was written, literature, and women need to be obsessed with their love interest. And that is why they love all of these Twilights and true, not Twilight, uh, sorry, Twilight and, and Danielle Steele and mm-hmm. all these romantic movies of Fifty Shades of Grey. You need to be obsessed with your target. And that's the psychology of how women work. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why this literature is so successful. And so he was really popular with the women because <laughs> he was known as the guru of this. And his printing press has stopped, and he had a, it was a big, up, a quiet uproar. And he reconciled with the church, because obviously the church was, this was indecent for him to do. And for a year, he went to mass, and he prayed, and made confession. And one day, his printing presses, like Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, just turned back on. Hmm. And out came a book called The Secrets of French Freemasonry, with a picture of the Baphomet, being carried by a bunch of men dressed as the Knights Templar with two guys in front holding the doors to a Freemason's temple. Mm -hmm. And it described a very... Now, France is very, very religious at the time. And it described an incredible conspiracy of the evil paladin order led by a woman named Diana Vaughn. Diana Vaughn was the head of this incredible conspiracy in France. She was the son of a Welsh astrologer named Thomas Vaughn and a a succubus from Wales. And that was her father and her mother. And evidently the French were in the midst of this conspiracy because they were in the center of Europe and the evil British Freemasons had infiltrated France through the Stuarts and the Yorkites 
And the Freemasons were a massive front for this Paladin Order. And the Paladin Order had two factions. There was the evil Satanists who believed in the devil. And then there was the Luciferians that believed that were convinced the Christian God was the devil. The God of the Bible was the devil. Right, right. And that Lucifer would bring light and knowledge and culture to humanity. And this really upset the Catholics in France. And for almost 20 years, book after book came out. He even got an audience with the Pope. Stories of in the Rock of Gibraltar, giant factories creating satanic paraphernalia. The headquarters of the Paladin Order was in Charlotte, North Carolina. Of course, it was in America. <laughs> and in around 1893 in the Layal District, which was a kind of like a big convention center, Leo Taxel held a press conference that was all based on one thing, that Deanna Vaughn had renounced her satanic ways and, and was ready to reconcile with the church. The archbishop and half the clergy showed up. Almost every major journalist for every newspaper showed up. And 5,000 spectators to witness Deanna Vaughn come and make a public appearance. Well, he got up on the podium. And of course, the French like to have police around for riots in case there's anything wrong. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for your 20 years of patronage. I've just bought a house in Galicia, Spain. I'm about to take the train. I hope you've enjoyed my conspiracy because this was the biggest hoax to prove how gullible the French people are. There is no such thing as the Paladin Order. I've made my fortune on your fiction. And no Diana Vaughn, that was actually his typist in England, the picture, the picture that he presented of her. There was a riot that ensued. The church was humiliated. And 13 years later, they declared a separation of church and state, and it broke the faith of the French people. Wow. Wow. Understandably and that's why so. the French do not believe in God. I was going to say, that sounds... I mean, I can understand how a whole country, pretty much a whole culture, would have uh, such a shift in their way of thinking and in the way of rationalizing things after something like that. I mean, that, that I can't even uh, begin to fathom what kind of reaction I would have had mm -hmm. if I had been in that crowd. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Uh, speaking of, of uh, Paris and, and the people, you know, it's unfortunate that back in November and, and the Friday of 13th of, of all things of last year, there was a, a, a series of attacks in Paris. And I hate to say that it seems to add a bit more to the uh, darker side of, of this beautiful city's uh, history. How have things changed in Paris after those attacks? I mean, um, you know, I, I wasn't in New York when the attack on the towers happened, but I saw it on TV. And obviously, you know, the world changed for us after that day. How was it for, for the folks in Paris after what happened on that unfortunate date uh, back in November of last year? I was with some of my friends our tour guide season closed. Um, I was also in New York on 9-11. So I witnessed two very historic oh, wow. things. Okay. It didn't affect France in the same way that 9-11 affected the U.S. Mm. It killed my tour business this year. I will say that. So we're only open in July and October, sadly. The yeah. tour business, the city is a ghost town of tourists. It's going to be a while before the uh, French recover. Yeah, that's the such tour a business. All my... I mean, if it's a cheap ticket to get to Paris. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, no, I was just wondering because obviously, you know, that was big news and, and, and a very unfortunate thing to happen. And uh, Paris being the city that it is, it, it's sad to hear that, yeah, the tourism has, you know, declined. And it sounds uh, like uh, quite quite drastically after something like that. And obviously, we hope that, that things get better for, for everyone out there. And I know we hope to go visit there again soon because, as I mentioned, we were there last year and during the summer. And it's so unfortunate that I did not come across your tours because I would have loved to have taken one of these tours and just, you know, get, gotten that history of Paris. One of the places that we did get a chance to visit that was a, an amazing experience to, to walk through was the catacombs. And the catacombs, obviously, tons of people have, have heard about it. it it's quite a, an interesting sight to see when you're there. But what are some of the stories about the catacombs? You, you mentioned a certain ghost whisperer in your book that goes by the name of Neil A., who, uh, as stated in the book, he, he felt like the uh, catacombs were empty of spirits. But, you know, there's people that believe that it could be haunted with all those remains down there. Um, can you give us a brief history of the catacombs? And what is there anything spooky, anything weird going on down there? Oh, it's, it's definitely creepy, but it's, an, it's, a, it's a ghost town of ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
most of the spirits in Paris are above ground. Hmm. Um, and because they don't do last rites in France, there's a big clog of a lot of the ghosts, uh, the souls. So a lot of souls don't move on. Oh, um, wow. Last rites are, are, are just as much for the closure of the, the mortal, uh, the living, as, as they are for the closure of the dead. So I, I do believe in souls. Um, and sometimes souls get stuck and lost. But the catacombs, they, they began in the 15th century, because in France, you legally own to the center of the earth. Oh, wow. Okay. If you own a property. So mm-hmm. in the uh, north, in the south of Paris, where there's a lot of limestone, um, outside the Latin Quarter, which is basically where the Pantheon is and um, kind of like part of the area that's near, um, that was the Latin Quarter was the old Roman city uh, called Vitesia. It's kind of like saying New Amsterdam for New York. Like a lot of people say that New Amsterdam w- was all of New York. Actually, New Amsterdam was one village that became a part of New York City, like Harlem and Brooklyn were all, you know, it all kind of merged together. There was a bunch of little villages in the city grew up. So what happened was the south of Paris, you could mine under your own land. People would just dig stones up and build things. But as buildings became taller and the city grew, a lot of these caves were covered up, these quarries and heavy buildings were put on top and they were forgotten about. And around 1875, a hospital fell into the catacombs, into one of these big quarries. And Louis the 16th, Marie, Ant- Marie Antoinette's husband, uh, had uh, the grand architect of Versailles go and build service tunnels and connect all these tunnels and uh, go through and fill them in with sawdust and like a kind of like a stonish sawdust. So what happened was they, these service tunnels were about the size of a human door, about a modern door. And they would build rest stops and, and bathrooms and wells for the workers because you had to do that. So all these giant quarries were filled in. And then when Napoleon came along, he emptied the graveyards in the center of Paris because they were just a health hazard of four mil- to eight million bones. And they just threw them in the catacombs and they just disposed of them. They were garbage. And then he built four cemeteries, Montparnasse, Montmartre. Mamad is in the north, Montparnasse is in the south, and um, in the east they built uh, Père Lachaise Cemetery, which were outside of Paris at the time they were built. They were on the border of the Parisian city. I mean, Paris has grown larger than that, so now the, the graveyards are inside the city, but they were put outside the city for health security reasons. And then, as a tribute to the great French atheism, Napoleon made a law that at the entrance of every cemetery, it had to say, this is the end. Because Napoleon was a very devout atheist, but he saw the institution of the church as a very important part of culture. So they dumped all the bones in the catacombs, and that area, the Empire de la Mort, Empire de la Mort, or where you go visit those bones, that is 1.7 kilometers of the 308 kilometers of tunnels that are underneath the left bank of Paris. And remember walking through the tunnels, you'll see a black line above your head. Yeah, yeah. And that black line is actually designed in the when the catacombs opened as a tourist attraction. It's one of the 13 museums of the pre, of, that are owned by the city of Paris. Remember that in the French Revolution, all the churches and all, a great amount of the castles, including Versailles, were claimed by, as property of the Republic. They're, they belong to the Republic, including Notre Dame as property of the French government. It's rented by the Catholic Church for one euro a year. So in the catacombs, there's 308 kilometers of tunnels and all sorts of weird stuff started happening down there. People ignored it except for that one section that you guys visit, which is the museum, the right. catacombs museum. Um, it's 90 feet under the city. It's below the subway and the metro. All the water is groundwater. It's all rainwater that seeps down there. And it was used for electrical lines. There was bunkers built in there. But there's one story of a guy named uh, Philippe Asper, who was known as the first cataphile. And he's kind of like the patron of the cataphiles. <laughs> nice. And he was smuggling chartreuse underneath city gates through the catacombs. And his candle went out. And they identified him 10 years later by the key to the monastery, where he was smuggling the wine. Wow. There are the chartreuse. And he had died. And they say his ghost still haunts the catacombs. But very few people have actually died in the catacombs. I mean, there's been a little stories and legends, kind of like a Blair Witch kind of thing where there was a camera and the guy, they found the, the guy went down to the catacombs making a documentary. A couple of years later, they yeah. found his camera and they found the footage and they just mm-hmm. saw him running off into the darkness. Right, right. Um, 
I've been into the catacombs. I think I can count 140 descents mm-hmm. into the illegal catacombs. Oh, wow. Okay. And I have brought down Neil, who is a very, very strong sensitive. And little did I know, while I was down there, Neil confessed where he got a lot of his abilities. Really? Yes. And he was a natural as a kid, and he was working in a hotel in Michigan that was half, like half the hotel was closed. And he could see all these things. But Neil, get ready for this. Okay. He's a second generation Scientologist. Really? Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) And Neil has been in Scientology. Okay. As much with all the controversy around it Uh is one of the largest ghost hunting organizations in the world. Really? Oh, wow. I had no idea. Absolutely. It's not known to the public. Mm -hmm. Okay. A lot of their spiritual technology, as they call it, is geared to becoming energy sensitive. And Neil was highly sensitive. That's well, he impressive. is highly sensitive. Are you familiar with uh, the name Ingo Swan? Because I, I believe he was a very, very gifted uh, psychic, I, if I could use the term. But I, I remember reading somewhere that he was also a Scientologist. And at the time, I was like, what? I, you know, I didn't know this side of Scientology. I don't know if, if you've heard that name before and if you can uh, corroborate. Sounds familiar. That. Yeah, it's interesting because I guess he was one of the, the few that allowed himself to be subject to tests by the uh, scientific department, I think, at Stanford University. Yeah, uh, the Stanford Research Institute, yeah, I think. Yeah, and he successfully was able to uh, do these tests where they would keep an object behind, a, you know, hitting in a box, and he could tell what was inside that object. Yeah, um, remote It's a fascinating viewing. story. Yeah, like remote Dr. Fakeman and Ghostbusters. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly like that. But, yeah, no, it's interesting because he was a Scientologist, and like I said, this is, uh, no, you're blowing my mind right now. I didn't know that Scientology was, or Scientologists were that deep into, you know, looking for, you know, this uh, spirit world, if you will. Uh, I mean, it's what Scientology is a mix is it's a mix of Carl Jung, mm-hmm. um, some science fiction mythology. You know, I mean, I'm not a Scientologist, but I do know them very well. I can uh-huh. walk into the Celebrity Center in L.A. and hang out with them. I, I'm not one to attack anyone. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll defend myself if necessary, but I'm not one to like judge. Right. And I, I have many, many, many Scientologist friends and you can be friends with Scientologists if you just approach it right. 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 Because they're all about, they're all about, the, you know, the thing is, is that without getting too deep into Scientology, mm-hmm. the one thing that I think a lot of people don't pay attention to is the actual teachings of Scientology. They admit that Hubbard wasn't the first guy to get it. He just put the pieces together that made Scientology. Hmm. Okay. Um, it's a lot of Carl Jung, um, clutch of subconsciousness and, and stuff like that. Hubbard, Hubbard refers to his work as research, not inventions. Hmm. Okay. All right. And you know what's really sucks is a lot of really great teachings and technology and ideas were collected by Hubbard, but people ignore him because of the controversy. They ignore the actual teachings and talk about the controversy, not the actual teachings of Scientology. There's a lot of religions that don't get that. There, it's like, you know, a lot of Christians, even Christianity, everybody talks about all the bad stuff, but they don't talk about the, you know, the good stuff. Right. I know that um, Alistair Crowley also appears in your book, and I mean, uh, I wasn't surprised to see his name there. He, he was a, a very interesting uh, individual. But I remember reading that apparently there was a, a connection with uh, L. Ron Hubbard, you know, Alistair Crowley and L. Ron Hubbard. And it seemed like Crowley knew everyone. Uh, did, did you come across uh, that in your research? Uh, yeah, but it didn't have anything to do with my it didn't have anything to do with the uh, um, the it didn't have anything to do mm-hmm. with Paris. Got yeah, yeah. I don't even know if Hubbard ever been to Paris, has ever been to Paris. Crowley has many times. Right. And actually, I wanted to ask you about his visit to Paris, uh, the the one that you uh, include in your book, because, like I said, I'm I'm quite fascinated by Crowley's life and uh, some of the things that he set out to do. It was quite bold of of him, that's for sure. But why don't you tell me a little bit about that story you included in your book about his time in uh, Paris? That was when he was coming back from India. Um, I think it was 1908, and there was another magician who um, uh, he had left some things with. And evidently the guy sold them to make some money because he never thought Crowley was coming back. Cause I mean, back then going to India would be like, you go for two years. 
it wouldn't be overnight. I mean, you'd go away for two years and you would uh, disappear for a long period of time. But what happened was as Crowley was on his way back from India, he stopped by the guy's house because he was broke because he spent all his money Mm because Crowley was a trust fund baby. And he asked for his money back. And the guy said, no, Uh, I've been keeping it. It's mine. And they were both proficient. This was about seven years after the uh, hermetic order of the Golden Dawn collapse. And this is when Crowley was first getting into the OTO. Because remember, the OTO did not start as a Thelemic organization. I mean, Crowley invented Thelema and then used the OTO as a vehicle to propagate Thelema. Mm-hmm. Crowley basically said, I want my stuff back. And the guy said, all right, let's have a magical duel. And <laughs> one of the battles in the magical duel was Crowley was in a, uh, the, the first one to strike was the other magician. Crowley was in a cafe in the Pigal district where Moulin Rouge is. And the guy strikes. And an old woman walks into the private room that Crowley had. Crowley was in the luxury. Excuse me. It was a beautiful young woman who came in to seduce him. And she touched his hand and she rose. She turned into this old hag and rose above him, kind of like an incubus. Uh, sorry, excuse me, a succubus. And rose above him, screaming, and he could feel his energy being taken from his body. So he, <laughs> he just said some ancient incantation and she fell to the ground and she said, I curse you. And then she ran out the door. So he basically, if she was a witch or a vampire or a banshee or whatever, Mm -hmm. um, he basically defeated her by using magic. Wow. And then he sipped, he sipped his tea and he said, under other circumstances, I would have had my way with her. (laughs) (laughs) He just had to sneak that one in, didn't he? Yeah, that's probably for it. (laughs) (laughs) Father Sebastian, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to ask you, we're talking a lot about, you know, ghosts and and spirits and things of that nature, doing research and and visiting all these locations. um, Do you participate in any type of like paranormal investigations? And if so, you say yourself are a skeptic. Have you encountered evidence? And if you've done these things that have made you go, you know what, there is something more beyond this physical world? Oh, absolutely. I've seen ghosts. I've interacted with them. I do magic. I perform ceremonies and rituals. I, I, I work with entities and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But I just think that a lot of, I think 99% of the people that, I mean, I encounter, I am I am a sensitive, but I think that 99% of the people that are doing this are just uneducated hobbyists that are, uh, they seek a thrill and they misinterpret things for what they're not. Um, and now, I recently had an opportunity to go visit Zach Baggins and his uh, new museum. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the emotional energy is what is left over uh, when the soul moves on. You can see the museum on Deadly Possessions on Travel Channel. I'm not a big fan of ghost shows because using equipment is not something that I think is... Uh, you need a sensitive. And I, I mean, I see spirits everywhere. They're like shadows hiding in corners, just hanging out. Most of them are lost. Oh, wow. Um, and... I went down with a group of Scientologists and we cleaned the catacombs out of about 12 spirits. We removed the hauntings. We exercised all the spirits. So wow. mm-hmm. the, uh, the catacombs is, there was, there was about 10 hauntings in the catacombs and we, we dispersed them all. Really? So they don't oh, wow. exist anymore. Wow. Yeah. We completely cleaned the catacombs of any spirits. You've ruined it There's for everyone else now. <laughs> yeah, all the, all the, uh, yeah. All these people looking for investigators <laughs> canceling their flights right now. It's like, darn. No, but wow, that is really well, interesting. No, but they're not going to be able to get into those sections of the catacombs oh, legally. Okay. Course, because yeah. you need to be an urban explorer. So don't worry about that. Uh-huh. <laughs> gotcha. But what, what, what a lot of people really expect is they want the ghosts to be there when the story's told to them. Right. It's not necessary. The ghost could have been there. You can tell a history of a spirit. What I think, I think a, a lot of spirits are actually in our heads. And I, I think that spirits, the human mind and the human soul are, we live on through storytelling and we live mm-hmm. on through, um, you can move energy just as efficiently at a football game and maybe even more as much as you can any magical ritual. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and I, I think it's foolish to think that you have to, you go to a football game or a rally or, or you, I mean, we have these modern rituals Yeah. and you go to a football game, you're going to feel the energy or a concert, a music concert. I mean, that is ritual. That is magic. Sure. Mm -hmm. And that's what, and that is energy. Yeah, no, it's what a lot of people, you know, call tulpas. I mean, you're, you're manifesting what 
you believe, essentially. You know, I'm really intrigued to just hear your opinion because um, during the intro, um, at the beginning of the show, we were uh, very briefly discussing the movie that was released, I believe, about two years ago called As Above, So Below. And we interviewed a, a lady, um, expert in a cult, and her opinion of the movie was, you know, it, it was genuinely quite accurate and interesting. I mean, we, we found it interesting as well, but... Uh, what was your opinion on, on that movie in terms of how well it portrayed? Because I know reviews were very up and down. Well, um, I went to the movies to see the movie with mm-hmm. 35 cataphiles. Mm-hmm. And then that night we went into the catacombs right after we saw the movie. So, I mean, pulling up the manhole, getting into the sewer, climbing mm-hmm. through the hole, you know, the whole thing. First of all, let me m- make something very clear. When you watch the movie again, if you do... Uh-huh. Pay attention to the reality of when there is no graffiti. Okay, that's the movie set. Okay, okay, okay. I see what you mean. When there is graffiti on the walls, that is the the actual real catacombs they filmed in. There's people down there all the time. I mean, I go into the catacombs. Most people go down there to smoke weed because weed is not as, you know, I mean, they go down. The cataphiles, like, is a cataphile, you'll go down for like, a year straight every day. And then one day you'll have a break and you won't go down for a year. All right. Mm-hmm. And I've been in raves down there. I, I mean, I can navigate a good portion of the network without a map. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. is like if, if we're in Paris at the same time, uh-huh. I could easily get you in, but I, I didn't, I didn't go down the last time cause I hurt my back, but I've been, there's four, wait, I've been in, three different networks is the GRS, which is the grand uh, network, which is under, that's the big one that everybody thinks about. Okay. Then there's one under the, under the 13th and there's one across from the Eiffel tower, across the river from the Eiffel tower, but that one's hard to get into. And they actually had a movie theater in there. Oh, is that the one? Yeah. I remember uh, seeing yeah. pictures the of catacom- that. The one they had to very it, rapidly get rid of. <laughs> well, cause the, the police went down there and they heard there was a bomb threat. They got down there. They mm. saw a, oh, a box, wow. like a round box with a blinking red light on the top. And then they opened it up and they found out it was a couscous maker. Um, <laughs> I mean, similar, you know. <laughs> it's right up there. You know, the French have a really drawing sense of humor about supernatural stuff. They like to like th- throw things in like that. So, yeah, um, tuples, there's also another word that I'd like everybody to know and go look up on Wikipedia, which is called an egregore, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. which is a more advanced version of a tuple. Father Sebastian, next time we plan our trip to Paris, we're going to... Try and make sure that we catch you. you. (laughs) Yeah, while you're over there, because uh, you sound like you're the guy to to hit up if you're out there. Why don't you tell people who are interested? Maybe they're thinking about going overseas. uh, You know, checking out the city. Uh, Why don't you tell people where they can get more info on your tour, your books, of course, and uh, and where they Mm -hmm. can keep up with you in social media. Um, They can find me on Father Sebastian on Facebook. That's my main social media point. Or you can find me as Father Seb on Twitter. Um, I'm also Father Sebastian on Instagram. And remember, that's I-A-A-N because I'm Dutch. So I I spell my last name with the Dutch spelling. And FatherSebastian.com, I just relaunched recently, um, which is a portal for all my projects. And if you want to know about the tour and the book, you go to DarkParis.com. It's really easy to remember. Awesome. Thank you so much, Father Sebastian. What can I say? You're definitely a a fountain of information, uh, not just of Paris, but of just a a whole plethora of of topics. It's been a a great pleasure to have you uh, joining us tonight. Uh, It means a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about something I love as Paris, because I'm in America right now, waiting. I'm leaving in about a week to go back home. We'll sneak in your luggage or something. I don't know. (laughs) Now we really want to (laughs) go. Thank you so much, Father Sebastian. Please enjoy the rest of your evening and we'll be in touch. Rock and roll. All right. Bye-bye. That was Father Sebastian of Dark Paris. Check out the website, darkparis.com. Look up his books. Go to Amazon. We'll be posting a link on our post as well. I've read the book and it's, it, I mean, you'll fly through it. It's so fun to no, read. It's, it's, it's full of amazing yeah. stories. Everyone and, loves uh, stories and oh, yeah. anecdotes and little and believe myths me, and legends. If you plan to visit Paris anytime soon, definitely get it because as I was reading it, I was making a list. Okay, next time I go, I'm going here, here, and here and finding yeah. Father Sebastian yeah. while I'm at it. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, definitely check it out. It's a great read, great book. And, I mean, you heard it here. You know, he's, he's a great guy full of knowledge and interesting facts. And a lot of them you will find in that book. That being said, 
If you miss any part of this show, definitely check out the website, WTRradio.com. In the coming days, you will see this interview in full on there. As always, I'm Engineer Frank on Twitter, West of the Rockies on Facebook, Genevieve Uway on Twitter. You can catch her, I think, officially. You're starting up, right? Now yep. at 8 p.m. every Thursday night, After right here. Hiatus. Yeah, and, uh, and music, you do- fun facts, jokes, and a whole lot more. If you want to catch interview, that's no added flavors. Oh, you are is. That will be the British way. <laughs> this is West of the Rockies. It's good old American. And that, that, that's just American. Yeah. Darn right. Uh, Rockies anyways. with two O's, three <laughs> I know, right? O's, I should, and 15 I should, P's. I don't I should, know. <laughs> I should switch up the spelling a little bit. Anyways, guys, take care. Be safe. God bless. Don't do anything too crazy. We want to see you back next week. We're going to go out with, uh, you know, uh, Father Sebastian was talking about going into the, the, the illegal catacombs. And I was getting all excited. Like, that just sounds exciting. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. I, I, there's no other word for it. So uh, yep. we're going to go out with a little bit. We're going to go out with a little Bauhaus. This is a track called dark entries we'll see you next week guys take care bye 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 west of the rockies with frank the engineer on the independent fm los angeles